Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Oh, man, we are ready to put a bizarre week in Astros baseball in some kind of context. And later in the show, we have news of an Astros legend becoming a manager. Plus, the sports world lost one of Akeem's underrated nemesis from his early Rockets days. But first, I'm joined by co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, as we sit here early Monday, the Astros have lost six of their last eight with four of those losses coming in extra innings. Four. Oh, yeah, it's brutal, Robert. Um, but it is baseball. <laughs> so, you know, that's just how it is. I, I mean, as as bad as things have been for the Astros, you know, the, the thing is, is that they're still five games above 500. You know, it's it's not like they're at the very bottom of the barrel as far as major league teams are concerned. You know, they do what they have to do. They're, they're still in it. I mean, I guess that's really the best news is that it's only May. They're still in it. And as much as, you know, we say that you, you don't win pennants in May or lose pennants in May or whatever, the fact is that there's enough of a sample size. I think you can see at least where the team is headed. And, you know, the Astros certainly don't look like a World Series contender. But at the same time, you know, they, they still have a chance to salvage it. So if, if you're looking for some good news, then I, I'd say that's really the best news right now is that as bad as the Astros bullpen and everything else that's going on, at least, you know, they're still in it and they can still turn things around. There, there's still enough time to do that. Dusty Baker is now four and ten, four and ten in extra innings in his two seasons. Let me put the percentage of the blame on his struggles like this, Stephen. I would say 75% is the bullpen, 25% is Dusty. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the bullpen, we, we can't, uh, we, we've talked about it a lot, but the facts are what they are. <laughs> it's just ugly. You know, uh, how ugly is the Astros bullpen? Well, you know, what What UT fans always say, you know, they give a certain date and they say, and OU still sucks. Well, Robert, we're recording this on May 31st, Memorial Day, and the Astros bullpen still sucks. That's <laughs> that's just it. But yeah, there, there are some other things that we can point to that say that, you know, maybe a couple of those extra inning games, the Astros probably should have won. I'm going to get to Dusty in a bit. Uh, at least one decision that he made, and maybe you've got some more Stephen, but let me give you the Astros bullpen numbers for the Padres series. And it's not pretty. It's 14 and two thirds innings, 22 runs, 14 earned. So there were some other issues that we're going to get to 22 hits, five home runs. This is in three games, 10 walks an 8.59 ERA over a thousand opponent OPS. The bullpen ERA for the month of May, which you know, there's one more day on Monday, Memorial Day to go. It's 5.20. The whip, Stephen, is 1.57. It's bad. Well, yeah, they're getting whipped. I mean, that that's the best way to say it. And I, I, yeah, it's just, it, and, and no lead is safe. You know, they had a seven to one lead going into the ninth inning of Sunday's game. It should have been easy street, you know, and then it turns into, you know, you're clenching your knuckles because the tying run is on base. And it ends up seven to four. You know they they could they almost blew a six run lead. So there there is just no security 
You know, even Ryan Presley got lit up, which is you know first time that's happened to him. So really, no one is immune in this bullpen at this point. Brian Abreu was put on the 10-day injured list Sunday, finally. And I say finally because it was either time to option him or invent an injury, one or the other. Uh, Nivaldo Rodriguez was brought up. I'll take anybody, anybody besides Abreu, not just Abreu, but <laughs> there's other guys, but besides Abreu at this moment, he, he just, he, he had all that promise a couple of years ago. It's not been there, Stephen, for two years now. Yeah, and unfortunately, Robert, it doesn't seem to matter who you put in there. It's like you're you're shooting darts at a dartboard blindfolded, and you're hoping that a dart will land somewhere at the center point. And it's just not happening for the Astros' bullpen. It doesn't matter who you trot out there. They're not getting the job done. And And, you know, my biggest fear coming into the season, Robert, is that so many of these young guys who did so well last year might regress to the mean. And that's exactly what I think you're seeing you know, we've got more fans in the ballpark. There's there's just more pressure in a 162-game season. It's not like it was last year. I I just think we're, we're seeing a lot of these guys, you know, who so, some of which hadn't even pitched above double A. I think we're starting to see their inexperience come to the forefront. And it's not just one or two guys. It's everybody. You know, no one is immune to this. And that I'd say that's really the most disturbing thing about this Astros bullpen right now. Belak gets optioned Sunday. His number's nearly identical to Abreu, but Andre Scrub needs to be optioned because he's been worse than both of them. The league hitting 280 off of him with an ERA over seven. 280 is actually one of the worst ones in the Astros bullpen uh, in, a, in a bad group. And of the young guys last year, he was one of the bigger concerns coming into this year since his control was so suspect even last year. He has 10 walks in 13 innings this year. He is averaging over seven walks per nine in the two seasons combined. Yeah, and with with him, Robert, and with just about everybody else, that is really the biggest concern is just the walks, the lack of command. You can see one or two pitchers who just have trouble throwing strikes. You know, it... It, it's easier than it looks to throw strikes, or it's it's harder than it looks, I should say, to throw strikes. It's easy for us to sit here and say that. But to a man, it's the walks that have just killed this bullpen as much as anything else. You know, you get runners on base, and then you, you throw a pitch that they're going to hit for a two- or three-run homer or double. So, yeah, Andre Scrub is, is another one of those guys I talked about that you kind of wondered, was he going to be able to put it together this season? You know, then you've got Blake Taylor, who's going to be coming back soon. Is is the same thing going to happen to him? But yeah, the the walks they're they're just brutal. Blake Taylor, yes, he's going to be back in the Red Sox series. As as me and Stephen are talking, he hasn't been activated yet. But James Click promised that, so I'm just going to say that's happened or is going to happen by the time you hear this. He may replace Scrub, although it's time we either make up an injury for Joe Smith or just. Let him go. Release him. You've got to do something because the league is batting 388 against Joe Smith. 388. Ted Williams is Joe Smith. It's his opponent every single game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Joe Smith is a conundrum because, you know, he's getting paid quite a bit of money for you to just outright release him. But, you know, you've got to do something at some point. Uh, I mean, the trade deadline is at the end of July. That's a long way from now to try to wait 
to get outside reinforcements. But I don't know what you're going to do because everybody on the 40-man roster who hasn't been injured, you've pretty much tried them, and nothing is working. So something's going to have to get pretty soon, yeah, especially where Joe Smith is concerned. You keep waiting for him to pull it together. He is a veteran, and he has been effective in the past. Of course, he missed 20, all of 2020. But how long do you wait? You know, that that's the big question. How long do you wait for a guy who you just keep trotting him out there and he just keeps getting lit up? Yeah, earlier I said you, you can't necessarily panic about bullpen guys, but we've been waiting for two months. None of these guys are getting it together. I, I know Christian Javier, uh, and we're going to get to him going to the bullpen, is going to help you out maybe a little bit there and maybe uh, Luis Garcia uh, in the bullpen on a regular basis, something like that. But here's the deal, Stephen. If you think, well, the trade deadline's in two months, maybe in a month or so we're going to get somebody that's not good enough at this point. I mean, you're losing games specifically because the bullpen all the time. You have this division right in your sights. Everything else on this team is really good. And the bullpen help is the easiest to get in trade. It's going to cost you the least amount of money of any position player or starting pitcher. Is that fair? Well, absolutely. And the the problem is, Robert, we're not talking about just one or two guys that you may have to replace that will you know, just suddenly patch up all the holes. I mean, we're talking, I, I just think there are too many moves that would have to be made. You're not, you're not going to trade for four or five different guys. Well, I mean, I guess you could, <laughs> nothing is far fetched, but yeah, that's a lot to try to replace. It's just, it's almost like an entire bullpen has to be realigned. And I think that's a lot to ask. You just got to hope that somebody, you know, a couple of guys will get hot, and things will turn around, you know, and and the other key that we haven't really talked about yet, Robert, is that the starters are just going to have to go deeper. You know, Zach Grinke did it, but uh, I mean, aside from him, you know, you've still got problems. You've got Lance McCullers on the D on the IL and Jose Urquidy is coming off the IL. So, but, but in order for it to mask the bullpen problems, the starters have to go deeper. I mean, <laughs> and, and be effective. Of course, that's the way to solve the problem you know, at least for the time being. Yeah, just when some of them were getting a little bit of momentum or Keaty McCullers, then they get hurt. Definitely. Let me pivot. I'm going to get back to the starters in a bit, but let me pivot to a new segment this week, and I'm calling it Dusty's Dumbfounding Decision of the Week. And, Stephen, let's just say I'm being kind with the title of this segment. I was thinking of some other Well, ones. you are, especially, you know, it's no secret that uh, you scratch your head a lot. Do you, do you have any hair left from all the scratching you've done with Dusty's decisions? Oh, look at Astro's Twitter. I ain't the only one. <laughs> uh, for me, it's uh, Dusty's Dumbfounding Decision uh, it's Saturday. It, 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 you may have another one in mind, Stephen, because it's almost like there's one every game. But the one that bugged me was Dusty starting Taylor Jones at first base when Aledmus Diaz was available. He was in the lineup as the DH. Of course, Taylor drops the foul ball. Then boom goes the dynamite. Presley gives up a three-run home run. Game tied. They ended up losing the game. If you're the Astros with all the key guys out of the lineup and injured, Yuli, Jordan, Brantley, it's imperative you do everything you can with what you have left, and you got to put out your best defensive alignment. So why isn't Aledmus playing first base? Good question. And, I mean, his bench is thin. You know, we can certainly point to that to say that. It, and the funny thing is, 
the Astros were in a position to win that game. And if Taylor Jones hadn't dropped that foul ball, they very well might have hung on and won that game. So it, it's it's a big play. I mean, that's the thing. Things like that come back to bite you. And then you point to it and say, well, it's a rookie or it's a guy that hadn't played much. I mean, he and Garrett Stubbs were in there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Dusty and his lineup decisions, we've talked about it over, you know, week after week after week. And it's several times a week that you have no idea what his lineup card is going to be from day to day. The thing about the Aledmus decision is I, I could hear Dusty saying it to me in my head. Oh, well, you know, he's been battling his groin or whatever, hamstring injuries, and he's always battling some injuries. But if you are going into a full sprint from catcher to first base, which you have to do if you're hitting, then you can play first base. And the other part about it is less than 24 hours later, he's out there playing first base, Stephen. I mean, it wasn't like, oh my God, Aledmus hasn't played in the field for the last three weeks. No, Aledmus has been playing the field some, and he played the next day with less than 24 hours. Yeah, and of course, Taylor Jones has played first base in the minors, so it's not like he put him in a position he never played before. But yeah, you're sticking him in a situation where you probably could have played Aledmus Diaz. You do have to kind of watch how much you play him, because as we've seen, he's just not durable. I mean, that's one of the big reasons that he's not an everyday player. But when he's in the lineup, Robert, good things happen. I mean, let's face it. He, he's he been hitting pretty well. So, yeah, it was just, unfortunately, it was a decision that, that really came back to bite Dusty on Saturday. Yeah, hit that home run this weekend, too. So, yeah, Ledmus does some good stuff on offense. It's just keeping the guy, you know, on the field. We've talked about that ad nauseum. But, you know, if he's available with all the other injuries – Play him at first base because that's where you need him, not Taylor Jones, a lumbering rookie or second-year player, I guess, now because he played a little bit last year. But, you know, a guy that doesn't have the experience, you know, just at least get the defense down because, I mean, that that's all you can do. I mean, you've got McCormick and Straw in the outfield that aren't exactly great either, but the infield's way more important. You know, the silver lining, I, I, let's let's go to a silver lining this week, and it's the return of Fromber and Odorizzi. Not just the return, but both had good starts. Arkady is back, as you said, Stephen, on Monday. And by the start of the, the time many of you hear this, we'll have a better idea with him. But what do you, what do you think of moving Christian Javier to the bullpen? Well, I think it had to happen, Robert, because if there's one thing that Christian has struggled with this year, it's just being able to be stretched out and, and go far enough in a situation where, as I just said, the starters are going to have to go and, and the bullpen just needs, desperately needs some help. So I have no problem putting Javier in the bullpen. You know, he showed it in the 2020 postseason that he can pitch an inning or two or even three if you need, you know, to have that long relief if a starter struggles or you have to pull him because of an injury. So, yeah, I, I didn't have any problem with Christian Javier. And as, you know, some of these guys come back and even some of these relievers come back, you, you may see someone like uh, Luis Garcia, who, who did a great job in the Dodgers series. But I, I think, again, you're going to see somebody like him go into the bullpen that can give you some innings. So maybe that's what it's going to take, Robert, is you take a couple of these guys that may be traditionally starters, but you just you need them more in the bullpen right now. Then you do in the starting rotation, especially when you've got, got guys like Framber Valdez, Jake Odorizzi, and Jose Urquidy coming back. 
I got to give a major hat tip to Zach Granke, who's averaging over seven innings in his last four starts. The big start on Sunday where he goes eight innings and takes most of the bullpen out of the equation, except, of course, Andre Scrub, who was trying to lose a six-run lead in the ninth inning. But let me ask you this, Stephen. Uh, if you're Dusty Baker, I mean, this whole deal with modern baseball, you can't pitch a guy over 100 pitches. Uh, you got to start thinking about let's a guy's not going to melt after he throws a hundred pitches. I mean, let's, let's get real here. This I, idea that we look at the analytics and, you know, they start pitching worse after a hundred pitches or the, this many times through the order. Can you be worse than this bullpen? It's time to start stretching these guys out and being a little bit different than everybody else in baseball and realizing where your strengths are. And these starters I'm sorry, they're they're just way better than the bullpen. Suck it up, guys. You're gonna have to go maybe 120 pitches, God forbid. You know. <laughs> yeah, just ask you know folks like uh, Cy Young and Nolan Ryan and uh, you know guys like oh, Cy's been dead for years, but you know what I mean. I, I mean, Robert, I think the the biggest problem I have is that we look at this, and when I say we, I'm talking about you know the decision makers in baseball. We look at this too collectively. I think you have to take each pitcher on an individual basis. You know, what what kind of history has he had with arm trouble? You know, how effective can he be if he throws 100 pitches? You know, we need to start looking at individual analytics instead of just going across the board and saying, okay, these guys can't throw more than 90, you know, 95 pitches in a game. It, it's going to be more of an individual thing. And you know what? If Zach Grinke could have gone out for the ninth inning on Sunday, you know, Dusty said he did consider it but decided he, he didn't want to overtax him. Well, you know what? As bad as the bullpen is, as long as you are pretty certain that you're not going to put a guy in jeopardy, because that's the thing. You don't want to overthrow anybody. It is a 162-game season. I get that. But I think a lot of it just you know, has to do with the way pitchers condition themselves. Sometimes I, I think they go about it the wrong way, and that's why you see so many of these arm problems. But I think you have to look at it from an individual standpoint Instead of just putting a blanket statement across the board, well, we can't let these guys throw more than 80, 85 pitches a game. All right. Next thing I wanted to get to is the Harvard-like battle that we have for the center field position that might be coming down the road. It's it's Chaz versus Miles. <laughs> Chaz. Don't you like that name? <laughs> <laughs> we saw a lot more of Chaz McCormick this week. His OPS is 732. Straw's OPS is 592 so there's at this moment over a 130 point difference between the two 140 point difference now over the last 14 days straws ops is 734 so eh, maybe maybe it's closer than i think it is but the question is if everybody's healthy do we have a new starting center fielder you think well and here's the thing and look Chaz McCormick is not going to be mistaken for George Springer there's no question about that but here's what Chaz McCormick gives you that Miles Straw does not and that is power he he has definitely shown some power when he's been in there he he's looking better and better and you know it, it, he's still got a small sl uh, sample size so I'm not ready to suddenly anoint him as the everyday center fielder and he's more of a corner outfielder but look as much as Straw has regarding speed, you know, it's like I've always said with NFL wide receivers, you can have all the speed you want, but you still have to catch the ball and you still have to run routes. Well, 
if you're going to play center field in Major League Baseball, you've still got to have those instincts and know where the ball is. And I don't think you would be any worse off with giving Chaz McCormick more opportunities to play center field than you do Miles Straw. Even though, yes, Straw may be, quote unquote, faster. It's about a question of who's going to get to the ball better and use those instincts and be quicker. So I am all for giving Chaz McCormick more playing time because, it, uh, you know, again, like Aledmis Diaz, it seems that the more you put him in there, the better things that happen. I think we know what Miles Straw is at this point. He's never going to have power. He's not Tony Gwynn as a hitter. Uh, the only thing you're getting from him is speed. If you're lucky, maybe he hits 250 or something like that. Chaz McCormick is just potentially, as a hitter, better, and I don't think there's enough of a difference defensively. I think ugh, I said this last week, but I'm sticking by this. If Dusty doesn't play Chaz more than Miles Straw, I, I just don't understand what he's looking at. And I feel like Dusty's out of touch. I mean, earlier I, I had my Dusty problems of the week. Was there anything that I missed, Stephen, that the dumb defending decision that I missed this week or two that you you uh, were, were looking at or anything that comes to mind? Not really. I mean, it just, I, I think a lot of this has just been overshadowed by the fact that you know, the injuries are piling up, and Dusty doesn't exactly have a great bench to work with. It's just in certain situations where, yeah, he could have played a lead Miss Diaz instead of Taylor Jones. But I really think a lot of the Astros' problems, I think you could just boil it down to an ineffective bullpen, you know, to a man, and just all the injuries that have piled up in the last week. I mean, you, you take a look, and you've got Michael Brantley, you've got Jason Castro, then you have Lance McCullers Jr., Brian Abreu, Kent Emanuel, you know, some of that. And then you've got, you know, then you've got Jordan Alvarez and Yuli Goriel who aren't on the injured list, but they're not playing for reasons that I, I guess if there's one other problem I have with Dusty is that be a little more specific or, you know, a little more revealing about what these injuries are. It's just that they get so vague sometimes. You know, these guys are sitting on the bench and they're not playing. You're talking about really potentially the Astros' best hitter for the long haul. And then you're talking about Yuli Gurriel has been the best hitter this season are not playing. Well, why is that? What's going on with them? You know, be a little more revealing as far as that's concerned. Wasn't it something like Yuli got his hand stepped on a couple of days ago? Yeah, it was that. And, and I think, you know, Gurriel, I think I want to say it was like a finger problem or something. But yeah, they're just not being a whole lot forthcoming. It's like, are you going to put these guys on the I.L.? Are you just going to hope that they can sit for a few days? And, you know, the timing with Alvarez, of course, is interesting because he hasn't been hitting. But I don't think a guy needs a week off to get out of a slump. There's definitely something going on there. No, Jordan, it's it's an injury. And he was in the batting cage on Sunday. You would figure, again, we're doing this early Monday, so I don't know what's going to happen on the Monday afternoon game against the Red Sox. But you would figure he's coming off pretty soon. And I think it was a deal where there's just so many guys were hurt. You're maybe running out of guys that you wanted to bring up from the minors. And, you know, you hoped that these injuries would maybe be a day or two and they get extended. And I mean, it's, it's all been worst case scenario. It, it, and I don't know if this is all Dusty's fault. I mean, we got to start blaming James Click because releasing this kind of information, that that's typically stuff that, the general manager, the front office. It's a conglomerate decision. It's a, you know, it's a whole organizational decision. And there's a lot of 
discussion I know amongst the Astros beat writers that, hey, maybe the communication between Dusty and James Click isn't all that great. They can't get their story straight on what's going on with some of these guys. I think that's very obvious. And and look, we're not asking to reveal, you know, I mean, the teams don't have to reveal everything to the media. And I understand that. I mean, being a member of the media for years and years, I I totally understand that. But I also believe that sometimes the less information you give, the more room it leaves for people to speculate. And if you don't want people speculating, just come out and give us something that we can put on there and say, okay, well, he's not going to play. So that that's really been my beef. But no, no I agree. I, I think it, it it is a team thing when you're talking about the manager and the general manager making sure they're on the same page. And I'm kind of getting the impression that maybe they are not. Speaking of managers, did you see who's the new manager at HBU, the baseball team over southwest side of Houston? I certainly did. You know, our very own Astro legend, Lance Berkman, is going to be the new baseball coach for HBU. Now, he does have some coaching experience. He's not going on just, you know, because he's Lance Berkman. He was at the University of St. Thomas, I believe, uh, last year. He was also at uh, Second Baptist for four years. Now, his name had been mentioned, or at least rumored, I should say, as a replacement for recently fired Rice coach Matt Braga. And, you know, he wanted to be considered in 2018 when Wayne Graham retired and Braga was hired to replace Graham at Rice. So, you know, this isn't the first time that Lance has been mentioned as a coaching possibility. So I I would have liked to have seen him get the Rice job, quite honestly. But I'm, I'm happy for him you know, get some experience at a at place like HBU, who's really trying to, you know, make some waves in the NCAA with some of their athletic programs. So real happy for Lance Berkman, a, a local name, a, a name we know as Astro fans is going to be the new head coach at HBU. Yeah, I'm kind of guessing maybe Rice didn't want to make their job a starter job for somebody that's never managed, you know, a college baseball team before. I don't know. That, that's probably the case. I, I think they wanted an, they've even said, you know, they want a coach that has, has experience coaching. So they're going to bring in somebody and not just somebody just because he's Lance Berkman. So I, I get it. Uh, it just would have been a, sentimentally speaking, it would have been a nice pick. I want to go big picture a little bit here and go outside of the Astros in Houston. And one of the big conversations about baseball happening outside of Houston is how bad the hitting has deteriorated this year, if I can say deteriorated uh, correctly. <laughs> but uh, everybody's aware We've already had, was it, what is it like, was it five no-hitters now, Stephen, something like that? Yeah, at least maybe six. Uh, yeah, I, I've lost track, and that's that's unusual in and of itself. Uh, you, know, you know, Nolan Ryan might have gone out and pitched five or six no-hitters in a year or something like that. Yeah, it's quite an interesting conundrum, and we talk every year, you know, does it have to do with the baseball, or is there is there too much being put on launch angle and exit velocity? And I think some of that, it, it is true, Robert. I think... You know, the biggest thing for me is just the strikeouts. I mean, and we're talking in the minor leagues, the strikeouts are up. They're up all across the board, really, in baseball. And I guess you could just call me an old school purist, but I just can't stand it when batters strike out. Because to me, if you put the ball in play, anything can happen. I mean, anything. Now, yeah, you can strike out and the catcher can drop the ball and you can make first base. But I mean, how often does that happen? But it, it's putting the ball in play, to me, that is the biggest thing. And it just seems that, that coaches and managers aren't as concerned about the strikeout anymore. It, I don't get it. I saw a comparison that you, Stephen, and some of our older fans might appreciate. All right, the league average player is batting 237. 
Dave Kingman hit 236 for his career. Okay, we're going to get to this in a bit, but the league average player is striking out 24.1% of the time. Dave Kingman, who was considered a bad hitter back in the day, who was terrible at making contact, struck out 24.4% of the time. So almost identical to Dave Kingman is the average major league hitter right now. That is what you're talking about, Stephen, right there. Well, Dave Kingman, for those who don't remember, who played in the 70s mostly, Dave Kingman was brought in for one reason and one reason only, and that's to hit home runs. The, the problem is that, yeah, he would either hit a home run or he would strike out. He, he was feast or famine kind of player. Chris Carter. Yeah, Chris Carter would be another example. Yeah, a more recent example. But but that, those are the guys you're talking about, the guys who, you know, they can hit for power, but if they're not hitting home runs, they're striking out. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me, the figure you just quoted, Robert, because that that's what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing more of this swing and miss or hit for the fences type of thing instead of more of the, the small ball or, you know, manufacturing runs, that kind of thing that I just like to see as much as, sure, I like to see home runs as well as anybody, but... I want to win a ball game. So if it means manufacturing runs to get it done, making contact, then let's do it. Yeah, we're going to talk more about what's going on big picture with baseballs. This thing, this thing's going to unfold, and they're talking about the rules changes that we've mentioned before. But I know there was an article with uh, you know discussion with Theo Epstein, who's involved with this. I'm sure uh, these discussions are going to get more hot and heavy. But uh, you know, with everything that happened this weekend all the stuff that was going on you had memorial day the astros stuff etc etc you might have missed the news that mark eaton a former utah jazz center back in the 80s and early 90s who was also two-time defensive player of the year died in a bicycle accident at age 64 eaton was seven foot four looked like this mountain man i remember vividly that nobody gave Akeem more trouble at the defensive end than Eaton did. And by that same token, Eaton said Akeem was the toughest guy for him to defend, not surprisingly. If you think about it, Stephen, Mark Eaton, he was like the Rudy Gobert of his time. Yeah, you know, that's a great comparison. That That's the way to put it. I, I dreaded playing the Utah Jazz in general, but I especially dreaded Mark Eaton because, as you said, Robert, he was a tank. I mean, I don't care how big you are. If you're not as big as Mark Eaton, uh, you're going to pay the price. And and Hakeem did have a lot of trouble with him. You know, I don't have the stats in front of me of, you know, game by game, but what he did against Eaton. But it, it was obvious that every time he went up against Mark Eaton, it was going to be a battle. And it's just, boy, that, that's sad that the way it ended with, with Mark Eaton that way. But he was definitely a nemesis against a, the Rockets team that, Really, the the rivalry between the Rockets and the Jazz, it's still there, but I don't think it was as at, at the you know at the peak as it was, as you said, during the time that Mark Eaton played in the '80s and especially in the '90s with some of those playoff games. Yeah, the early '90s, he had gotten a little bit injured. He wasn't quite the same player in his last few years. He played till '93, but those '80s teams with Mark Eaton. You know, I always hated Malone and Stockton, and they were kind of cheap shot artists. Mark Eaton was somebody that I respected. He he wasn't doing that sort of stuff. And you're like, man, 
I, I want to hate this guy, but he's just annoying because it's like Akeem can't do anything against him. Well, yeah, I, I don't think Mark Eaton was a, was a dirty player at, at all. But yeah, you talk about Malone and Stockton, and we could we could go on and on about that. But Mark Eaton was just he was a nemesis, a, just a force, you know, inside. That was yeah, annoying. That's that's the best way to put it. He was he was like a a fly that just would never go away. He'd just keep coming back for more. And here's the numbers: three and a half blocks during his career. That's what he averaged. And check this out. In the 84-85 season, he averaged 5.6 blocks per game. That was twice as much as Akeem that year, who was second in the league. They didn't start recording the block shot as a stat until the 70s, so we don't know the numbers put up by Bill Russell or Wilt Chamberlain. But Eaton is the all-time leader in blocks per game, more than Akeem, or Dikembe Mutombo. I mean, he was incredible. Yeah, and and again, talk about an underrated player. Those are the guys, you know, Hakeem and Dikembe. Those are the guys you talk about. And, of course, you talk about Russell and Chamberlain. But as you said, they didn't keep that stat. But I bet what Mark Eaton did was pretty darn close, if not even better than those guys. Because, uh, yeah, five block shots. I mean, that is an incredible number <laughs> to average per game. He's not somebody that would have survived in today's game because Gobert, he's a lot more nimble, the ability to get out a little bit on some of these three-point shooters. Mark Eaton wouldn't have been able to do that. But back in the time, you know, you got to judge everybody by the time that they played. And I'd forgotten about his crazy path to the NBA. He didn't get to the league till he was 25. After he graduated high school, he goes to an automotive school becomes an auto mechanic, making 20 grand a year. He was eventually discovered by a guy named Tom Lubin while he was repairing cars in Anaheim. Lubin was a chemistry professor and an assistant basketball coach at some place called Cypress College, convinced Eaton to enroll at the community college and try out for the basketball team. It's an amazing story of him just getting to the NBA. Well, you know, I've always said that nobody can get to success by themselves, and it takes somebody to believe in them. And boy, there, there's a case for it right there with Mark Eaton. That, that's one of the things I, I love it because everybody has a story and some are, are more intriguing and unique than others. And yeah, that is, I, I remembered the name Tom Lubin. And that's probably, you know, the one that discovered Mark Eaton, as you said, Mark Eaton was one of those prototypical big men of the day. Uh, so yeah, to say that he could flourish in today's game probably would be stretching it. But, uh, you know, you can only go by what you see at the time. And he was dominant, a dominant presence in the game at that point. Also on Saturday, same day we found out about Mark Eaton, there were some other beloved figures that we lost. It was a tough day on Saturday. This one that I'm going to talk about to start with is closely related to sports. It kind of mixes a former MTV star into that. But for those of you who remember Tabitha Soren, she's now married to the author Michael Lewis. Soren was big on MTV about 30 years ago, 25 years ago or so. And, and Michael Lewis, he wrote Moneyball and The Blind Side. So I know sports fans know who that is. They lost their 19-year-old daughter in a car accident, which that was the saddest news. She was so young, 19 years old. But we also lost the brilliant singer-songwriter B.J. Thomas. I, I, I got to mention him because he's a Houston guy. He went to Lamar Consolidated High School. And Stephen, you and I are both fans of, of him. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, I played a lot of B.J. Thomas's music when I was in radio. I spent, you know, most of my years as a DJ uh, at music stations. So I, I did sports. Uh, you know, B.J. Thomas uh, actually ended up uh, becoming a Christian. And uh, when I worked in Christian radio, I played a lot of his music. So 
yeah, raindrops keep falling on my head, hooked on a feeling, I can't just can't help believing. So many great hits that he had. But you know, he was he was such a versatile singer. He could do pop, he could do country. Uh, you know, he he wrote probably one of the longest song titles ever. Uh, you may remember this one, Robert. Hey, won't you play another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song? That was the title of the song. So yeah, I was real sad to see B.J. Thomas uh, dying at the age of 78. He'd been battling lung cancer for quite a while, but yeah, got to root for the Houston boys. That's for sure. Yeah, that that's one of the great titles in all of music. Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong. That's a such a country style song, although he did a little bit of everything. He wrote for Elvis, Hooked on a Feeling. You mentioned that one. That's my favorite of all of his tunes although you know you, you you throw out a number of stuff from him we also lost gavin mcleod from mary tyler moore and the love boat both shows that i absolutely loved i still catch the love boat occasionally you can make fun of me for that but to tie it into sports <laughs> uh here are a few of the sports figures who guest starred on the love boat over the years because you know i i, I watch it's always cool when some of them show up joe namath dick butt Rams lineman Rosie Greer, Rams quarterback Pat Hayden, NFL Today pregame anchor Jane Kennedy, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, like Lou Dunbar, Curly Neal, Gator Rivers, and Jimmy Blacklock, whose son, Ross Blacklock, plays for which team, Stephen? <laughs> oh, how about that? Uh, they, I think there's a team called the Texans or something. Yeah, the Houston Texans. Apparently yeah. they're still in the league. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I never was, to be honest, a, a love boat guy. I, I, I probably watched, I don't know, two episodes. But that is the one thing that I, I think always jumped out at me, Robert, when I knew the show was coming on. And, you know, you'd see the previews and go, man, it's like one celebrity after another coming in there. But as you mentioned, Gavin McLeod, I now I did love the Mary Tyler Moore show. I'll, you know, you, you love the love boat. I love Mary Tyler Moore. I'll just go ahead and admit it from a guy standpoint. I loved watching that show. So, yeah, another in, indeed another loss with Gavin McLeod. Oh no, I love Mary Tyler Moore. Also, Gavin McLeod on that show played Murray. Murray is the type of journalist in the newsroom. I mean, I worked in several newsrooms. That's that's the guy you wanted to hang out with. Yep, absolutely. I, I worked with a few of those kind of guys too. Yeah, he's just hilarious on there. Totally different characters too, so you can see a little bit of his range. You know, Murray was more of this shy, retiring type, and sort of, you know, had more of an ethnic feel to his character while, you know, the captain was, you know, the strong, but he brought compassion and as well as heart to that character. But he was more that strong boat captain type guy that was a little bit, you know, manly shoulders out while Murray, you know, was a little bit more red, but just a, a really good actor. Everybody says he was a great guy. And, and Mary Tyler Moore, the, the only two main people left from that show i mean it's huge hit in the 70s all that's left is ed asner and betty white yeah is closing in on 100 wow amazing how that works uh last thing i got and i'm not a huge racing fan but as a kid the indy 500 always a big deal i enjoyed it on memorial sundays as a kid and steven i, I caught the last few miles of the 500 saw elio castronevis win his fourth indy 500 at age 46, great scene at the track. He tied A.J. Foyt, the Houston area legend, among others, with four indies. But more importantly, he pulls it off just one week after 50-year-old Phil Mickelson won the PGA. 
So yet another big win for Gen X. We're not done yet, baby. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's somebody's got to stick up for us 50-something, 40-something guys. You know, I, I used to – I've never been a racing fan at all, Robert, but if there was one race that I would always watch growing up and even a little beyond, it was the Indy 500. And it's amazing. You know, NASCAR has really taken over, I think, as far as the racing scene. And you still hear about the Indy 500, but – yeah, it just doesn't seem to have that same, I don't know, pizzazz, pomp and circumstance, whatever you want to call it. But I, I remember when AJ won his fourth. I mean, I was certainly rooting hard for him because he's a Houston boy, and I always root for the Houston team uh, boys. And so now the fact that it's tied, uh, kind of rooting against anybody breaking it, just you know, from a sentimental standpoint, because I was always such a huge AJ Foyt fan. Yeah, that's the. Yep. Noise of the Indy 500 for me forever as you, you hear that over and over again. But uh, I, I do want to mention the fact, because we, we haven't got into it much, but, you know, the NBA playoffs are going on. And what, what cracks me up is I, I know Rockets Twitter, oh, man, look at what Russell Westbrook, they've been talking about him, what, what he's done done during the year, you know, with – you've got John Wall's been hurt. So it's like, oh, we could have used Russell Westbrook or – Oh, we've been aching for Chris Paul over the last couple of years. But as I'm watching the playoffs, Chris Paul's hurt in the playoffs. Russell Westbrook's not playing all that well in the playoffs. That sounds kind of familiar. It sounds like exactly what we saw. I I don't miss them for that matter because that, that was going to be their problem if you were going to try to do anything with either one of those two guys at this point in their careers. I think, Robert, what it is is that when you go from where you were last year to as bad as things were this year, anything looks better than what it is now. But let's be honest. You know, if you still had Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, then you would probably get what you've been getting. You get just so far, and then you get knocked out. And then you'd have Rockets fans going, well, you know. And, and of course, don't you know? forget James Harden. you got to throw him in there, too. He was there. So, yeah, when things were as bad as they were this year— Sure, guys like Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul are going to look a whole lot better than you know the the worst the team with the worst record in the NBA. Absolutely, but put them all back in there, and you'd probably still have the same Rockets team you had the past few years. And I'm not going to count Chris Paul out yet because it's two two with uh, Phoenix and the Lakers, but I just don't see him being able to make it through the playoffs. He's already gotten banged up. He's sort of been playing with one shoulder tied behind his back for a couple of these games. You know, we'll see if he can pull it off. I mean, I, I would love to have Chris Paul back just because we'd love to have the draft picks back. would love to be a better team. But yeah, there's some stuff about Chris Paul that, you know, was always going to be a concern and is still is a concern. And, and that is not changing. Now, the other thing that I've watched in the playoffs is Clint Capella and the Hawks, and they are fun to watch. And if there's one guy that I miss terribly, it's Clint Capella. I loved watching Clint Capella, and he's done a lot for that Hawks team and their defense and sort of, you know, helping out with the interior defense that was an, a big issue with them. You know, when you got guys like Trey Young and some of the other guys they have on the perimeter, uh, Capella shored that up for them this year, and, and it looks like they're going to make it to the second round. Yeah, I really like the looks of that Hawks team. And just, you know, considering what they've had the, the past few years and the struggles they've had. It's it's good to see them up and in the playoffs and causing some problems. You know, they could be the one team that might go pretty far. I certainly don't see them winning 
you know, even the Eastern Conference Finals, much less an NBA championship. But yeah, you got to pull for Clint Capella because I mean, at one time he was up and coming. I mean, he was improving in almost every aspect of his game. But it it just it's like he hit a wall. But it's good to see him doing well with the Hawks, and they're at least you know going somewhat deep into the playoffs. Not a whole lot of surprises in the playoffs. It's going to be a little bit more interesting once we get to the next round and where it really gets fun. But uh, as far as the Astros this week, just to close it out, I mean, we just got to hope that uh, the bullpen isn't bull something <laughs> else this week like it's been for the last two months, I guess. Yeah, all you can do hope is, Robert, is just hope for a better day. And as I said, I mean, we we started the podcast on a positive note, so... You know, the Astros are still in it. I mean, they're in a division that they could still easily win. But, you know, as each day goes by and each lead gets blown and, uh, you know, the bullpen just continues to blow up, it's going to feel less and less like that. But this will obviously be a big four-game series with the Red Sox. It's been a tough stretch. But, you know, you got to win at least some of those games. And, I mean, look, when the Dodgers series, I'll take the split, Robert. I'll take it. I, I didn't know if they could even do that. But they did at least split with the Dodgers. They lost two out of three to the Padres, but they really they could have they could have swept the Padres if it hadn't been for the bullpen. That's not a far fetched thing to say, even though it's against the best team in baseball. So we just have to hope that, you know, maybe this week somebody will get hot, you know, in the bullpen, that the starters can continue to go deep, and by this time next week, maybe we'll have a little better progress report. It's Memorial Day as we record this, so of course we salute all the soldiers that put their lives on the line and lost their lives, obviously, uh, over the last 250-some-odd years it's been. But uh, uh, just to salute uh, them as we finish things off, and you can, as you know, reach us on Twitter, Facebook, or email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net for any questions or topics or anything you want to hit us with. In the meantime, and until next week, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.